Hello and welcome to Tall Tales, a new podcast series presented to you by the International Literature Festival Dublin in partnership with Molly, Museum of Literature Ireland, where we're sitting here today. Uh, the Tall Tales podcast series is perfect for everyone who just loves children's books. I'm Shane Hegarty, the author of Boot and Darkmouth, and today I'll be delving into Tall Tales Chapter 1, Runaway Robots and Other Adventures in Children's Books with Frank Cottrell Boyce. Now, how are you, Frank? I'm good, I'm good, yeah. Uh, I'm going to start, I'm going to give the intro, uh, which d- uh, sometimes if, in terms of your own CV, which is going to require a little bit of a deep breath, because <laughs> you're not just the author of a lot of children's books that people know and love, The Runaway Robot, Millions, Sputnik's Guide to Life on Earth, Framed, Cosmic, The Astounding Broccoli Boy, The Chitty Chitty Bang Bang sequels, uh, Millions, of course, uh, The Unforgotten Coat, uh, but you've also, you're also a screenwriter, uh, writing uh, Films such as The Railway Man, 24-Hour Party People, Goodbye Christopher Robin, which we love in our house. Yeah. Uh, you also wrote um, episodes of Doctor Who and the uh, 2012 opening ceremony for the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's a, there's a, a line in, in, in Hot Fuzz where they get rid of the um, do-gooder uh, cop out of London by saying, you're making us look bad. <laughs> And I feel that way as a children's writer, that you're making the rest of us look very, very, very lazy. Well, it, it's just an accumulation of years. I'm an old, old man. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and how have you found, I suppose I have to start, unfortunately, with the inevitable question about how have you found the pandemic in terms of creativity? Because there are those people who say they struggled with creativity during it. And then there are others who have in some strange way enjoyed the uh, the quiet of it, the quiet of it. it a little bit more yeah. productive it wasn't that quiet to be honest I mean I think I mean you'll know but like one of the defenses you have as a children's writer is geography it's like I mean I would love to come to your school in Shanghai but <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course that disappeared because you could zoom everybody so I was doing quite a lot of zoom stuff and um and also like at the beginning I think thinking it would not that not take not go on for this long I started uh, like uh, to to give like a creative writing workshop on Instagram where I'd set a task at the beginning of the week and have a live session in the middle of the week and then read out the kids um, work on the Friday, which I thought would be a lovely thing to do for two or three weeks. But obviously (laughs) it became a career. Um, It was was kind of fun because you could, I realized that I, after a week or so that it, it was kind of all right for me to read their stuff out. But, there were all these actors who, who were not doing anything and you could get them to do it. So these kids who'd sent in like their little story to Frank on a Wednesday, we had like massive <laughs> Siobhan McSweeney from uh, Derry Girls reading stuff. We, we had everybody reading stuff. So that, that, I mean, that was great. It was nice to have left that as a kind of little legacy there, you know, but it was busy. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, do you like doing the school visits and the library visits and the festivals is that something that you miss um like i love the school visit i mean i love the school visit while it's going on you obviously don't like the travel and i don't like you know you don't become a writer because you want to be out of the house you like being yeah. <laughs> you know, you're always trying to recreate that that moment when everybody was out and it was nice and quiet and you could cuddle up so like you know standing around on cruise station waiting for a connection to McConnell is not wonderful but the minute you get into the classroom that's I mean you know it's it's Homeric that isn't it you know you are the storyteller and yeah, also if you're yeah. a dad with a lot of kids then the idea that lots of children 
are going to listen to you instead yeah. of not listen to you. It's kind of a weird fantasy come true, you know. Well, I sometimes I find that strange line that um, you have because you're leaping around and being ridiculous yeah. and doing all the things that your own children find embarrassing. You get to act out in a classroom, but occasionally because they see that bit of you, I don't know if you find it, they say, God, you must be a great dad yeah. to have. <laughs> like, and, and you think, not. yeah, you go and talk to my children. Yeah. And, see, and you have and you've seven children who can critique yeah. your dadness. Yeah, and they do. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, because obviously we're here in Dublin, and before we start talking about the books and about your career, um, you're Liverpoolian, Catholic, seven children. You, is there Irish blood in there? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm Liverpool Irish, and Liverpool has always had that very strong connection. I, I didn't mm. go a lot because my it's my dad. My dad's family were in Northern Ireland, so like in the seventies, it wasn't like Belfast was not the holiday destination of choice. Like <laughs> no, all the other kids no. who had in my school who had family in you know Galway or they would all go for the summer. And I married a girl whose family from Sligo, and she did that thing that a lot of English Irish kids did of like you 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 went home on the last yeah. day of summer term and you came back on the first day of <laughs> so you had the summer holidays now and so we did that with our kids i think our kids feel much more connected than i did growing up and that we go to sligo every year oh great great and do you find you know is there because sometimes there's that sort of idea or maybe it's a maybe it's a cliche maybe it's earned but that there is you not just between the connection of ireland and, and liverpool but also that there is something unique about the storytelling oh yeah uh, within each of you know both liverpool and and ireland i mean is that do you think that's true yeah no abs- absolutely i mean you <laughs> my idea of what a writer is is definitely a fairly irish idea of what well growing up i mean it's probably changed but like as a teenager my vision of what an i what a writer would be is definitely inflected by <laughs> the irish ideas of what a writer is which is you know to do with being able to talk as well as to write and for it to be in a verbal thing and a and a, a speaking thing not just a kind of a kind of semi-academic reclusive thing it would be a sociable thing you know yeah and uh so so when you were young and when you were reading, what were you reading as a as a child growing up? As a child growing up, um, well, like, oh, I mean, I read a lot of stuff. The, the stuff that has stayed with me would be the Moomin books, which I absolutely mm. loved and which are kind of the opposite of what I would write, but they're yeah. very close to how I would live because the Moomin books, <laughs> unlike a lot of other children's, like children's books, it's like you've got to get rid of the parents for the adventure to start. Yeah. So it's, they've all got to be killed you know, or there's got to be a war on, you've got to be evacuated or you've got to be sick. Whereas the moving books, the dad, the dad that you were describing before, you know, the dads that we've become um, is in the book. You know, he's kind of ridiculous character in a top hat who wants to lead the adventure but isn't really quite up to it psychologically. And the mum is part of the, the mum is the hero of those books. So the idea of like a family that can go on an adventure together, that's really stayed with me in life as much as in writing. So the Moomin books are huge. Um, from, from the Irish point of view, I was taught by nuns and they were all Irish. And I had this fantastic nun called Sister Paul in year six who made me really. She was a fantastic teacher. But I always, <laughs> I'd forgotten about this till now, but like she sort of committed to tell us the story of the saint of the day. And of course, that really came out in millions, obviously, yeah. which is about a boy who can see saints and is obsessed with saints. And I always remember being quite aware of her pain because once she'd undertook that, it was like, you think saints are just kind of better people, but actually it's a gallery of 
psychosis and nutcases and weird worlds and you know just, you know like putting your hand up and going well, what exactly is self castration sister and yeah. <laughs> when you say virgin martyr what do you it's like well just give up sister <laughs> but that, that i do remember that that kind of rich trove of stories so like six o'clock saints would have been a big thing actually for me and when, and do you remember when you discovered writing as such? Oh, yeah, that was in her class. As a writer? No, it's in her class. I mean, I didn't know what it was. But I, all the way through school, I'd had a really close friend and in year six. And we, were, we weren't bad boys, but we just sat at the back and nattered, really. Um, and um, we weren't good at anything. There were kids in my class who were very good at things. There was a good kid who was very, very good at football, kid who was very good at drawing, kid who was very good at the piano, kid who was incredibly good at bullying people, like a really yeah. world-class scary guy. Um, and we weren't good at anything. And then he was off school sick in year six quite a lot, and I really missed him. And for some reason, I just put a lot of effort. The, the work that I, the effort that I would have put into entertaining him, I put into this piece of work. And she picked it up at the end, and she looked very surprised. I mean, she looked, if I'd laid an egg, she would not have looked on that desk. <laughs> if she'd come up to that desk and there was a hot steaming blue egg at Adelaide, she would not have looked more surprised. But she did this amazing thing. She read it out to the class. She didn't put it on the wall. You know, she didn't give me top marks. She read it out to the class. And I was like, <gasps> I mean, that's that thing. Like straight away, it's something that you share. Yeah. And it's entertainment. And also that feeling of like, oh, words are something you could be good at. Like a ball is something you could be good with, or a paintbrush, or a piano, or your fists. That words are something you could be good at. That that struck me that day, and I didn't know that writer was a job. But I, I think I did start to think. Well, sometimes if you see a comedian or an actor, they're not saying words that they made up. Maybe somebody else made those words up. Hmm. I remember watching Walk on Wise. I mean, this is so. I must have been. There must have been some element of pretension in me, even at this point. But I remember watching Morecambe and Wise and thinking, yeah, that's very funny. And watching the credits at the end to see who wrote Morecambe and Wise. And it was only one guy. One guy wrote all their gags, Eddie Braben. So I think it was the first writer that I noticed, really, was Eddie Braben. Who was, that's a kind of odd thing to have noticed. But anyway... Yeah, but it's. I, th I think everybody has. We forget how different it is now because our jobs are going into to schools and classes and festivals yes. and how much kids have. I mean, for me, I remember seeing uh, Roald Dahl on the TV uh, for the first time, walking up to his um, shed, uh, you know, sort of hut, yeah, yes. and writing, and and that was the moment that I went, oh, that's a real person. Person. It's not yeah. just a a name on a spine of a book. And it's amazing how those moments can have that sort of profound Huge. impact. But also, as you mentioned, teachers, I think, um, I mean, I presume you found in your time that th there are all these unsung heroes that have this impact on kids' lives that reverberate for a long time. And teachers, and I think I've met a huge amount of amazing librarians and school librarians huge. as well yeah. who have these huge impacts on yeah. kids. Yeah, I mean, and librarians in so many ways, you know, they, they curate the world's culture and they bring it into the door. And like, that's the only kind of stuff in school that's off, there's, there's libraries and sport. They're the things that are off curriculum that give you a chance to do something that if you're not, you know, a, a beyond passing exams, I guess. And they create a safe space as well. You know, the library was definitely a, a safe space in the, in a good sense you know it was a cozy nice place to be a nice place to be in school which can sometimes be quite a hostile environment yeah and what were your first attempts then at writing 
that you knew were uh, not just writing for school, writing, you know, what were the first things that you, you felt you were on a, uh, on a mission to actually turn them into something, uh, ter- effectively, sorry, but turn them into money or turn them into a job, you, you know? I'll tell you exactly what it was with money. That's another teacher. In, uh, yeah. When I was in fifth form, uh, which is, well, I would have been about 16, 17, I had 15, 16, I had a teacher, another teacher, an English teacher called Mr. Biggs, who was very, <laughs> I realise now that I've got kids haven't gone through the system who like, you know, how focused it can be. We, we had only the vaguest idea of what books we were actually supposed to be studying for the exam because he just bought so much into the room. And, um, this, I'll cut a wrong story short, but I, I did a Punch and Judy show and Mr. Biggs drove me round. And I did a punch, I was the Punch and Judy show on Morecambe Beach for a while. And uh, so that was my first kind of uh, foray into entertainment, which is like, Horrendous to think about now. If you think of what the I don't know if you any people have an idea of what a Punch and Judy show looks like, but the content is yeah. wife beating and satanic it's, possession, <laughs> and the climax, the comedy climax, is a public hanging. And I think the first kind of bit of creativity that, like, I mean, what was good was that you you were confronted with an audience, and the audience feedback was immediate. They they either gave you fifty p. Or they didn't, you know, and that was a big, like, money, 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 and performance very closely. I mean, it's only one step up from busking, really. But I realised that if I made the rope a bit longer on the gallows, <laughs> the drop when the puppet dropped off the front and was hanged would, would be more scary. And I got this. Sh- <laughs> this is horrible. I, I, I ended up with quite a long rope, and I put a weight in the puppet. So when Mr. Punch hits it. It really fell with quite a sickening oofness and bounced back up, and kids would faint. <laughs> I would think. Like he had a little hole to look at, and I'd be like, that, "That was good." It's like, no, that was not good. <laughs> and uh, and from there, I mean, I, I, you your journey wasn't straight into writing children's books and no. writing novels. It was it was via TV, isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, you know, we we had our we started our family quite young, and I was quite keen to get money. So, I, and there was a soap opera in Brookside. Uh, there's a soap opera in Liverpool called Brookside. Yeah, we all know it. We all know it. Really, it was like it seems yeah. a long time ago now, you know. And, yeah. and well, that was quite exciting because it was very. Um, I, I'm putting. I mean, this in a good way. Nobody really knew what they were doing. Um, yeah. It was very new. It was a new way of making. It was like the start of video technology. It was single camera shoots. Um, and I went on to Coronation Street later, which is like very, it's a studio with multi-cameras. And this was much more like making a Ken Loach film every week or something, mm. you know. And it wasn't that clear what the rules were. Uh, and it was exciting. A lot of big personalities, you know, and um, it was fun. It was good fun. But you were, uh, you, I, I, am I right in saying you had a script for millions? Yeah. Floating around. So we're skipping forward yeah. a little bit, obviously now. But you, you had a script for millions. Yeah floating around mm-hmm. and at that stage so when was this and and it hadn't this the idea of actually writing books hadn't yet come into your mind okay so i mean i the idea the story of millions is two little boys find a bag full of money and i wrote that as a script and and everybody loved that script it was a really popular script it got passed, passed around a lot but nobody ever wanted to make it because you know it's a family film and we don't i mean it's very, very hard to do a family film. If you do, if you do a thriller, you're up against 
another thriller, which might work, might not work. Or, you know, if you do a Ken Loach film, you're up against, you know, some other realist film, whatever. But if you do a family film, you, you are up against Pixar and Disney. And that's it. Like, so nobody wanted to go near that. And also it was about two little kids. So there was nobody um, that you could put in a nice dress and send up the red carpet, legally anyway. And... Um, <laughs> You know, or pro- properly. So it was never that commercial prospect. And the only director it was never sent to was Danny Boyle, who was famous for films about junkies and zombies at the time. And in in London, there's a um, a big edit suite called Delane Lee, which is like it's rabbit warren of edit suites. And someone had left it in the little kitchen there. And um, I, when I call it kitchen, you know, it's like the bit where there's a packet of digestive biscuits in a a kettle and in the time it yeah. took the kettle to boil danny read the first 30 pages and that day rang me up and said um i'd like to do this so that that film happened quite quickly oh this is quite a long roundabout way of answering this question is it no, right no no, no it's so true. the film yeah. was happening and we went out to dinner together in in liverpool and we talked about books danny is a voracious reader i mean like um he's read everything and he's reading everything and it's he, he sort of reads it as it comes out and we're talking about books and i would find myself like he would be talking about this sort of latest uh kazakhstan masterpiece <laughs> <laughs> and i'd be going millie molly mandy they were really underestimated those books <laughs> and we started talking about children's fiction he said well why have you never written a children's book and i went well i never i mean i've always wanted to but never had the idea and he went well I don't want to be weird, but like two little boys find a bag of money. <laughs> I went, oh, and it was like an well, absolute face palm moment of like, I've been hiking this script around for like a decade and it could have written as a book. So I went home. I literally started typing that night and I wrote it in about eight weeks, millions. And it did really wow. well. I know. But I obviously I'd actually been working on it for years hmm. in a different format. It was the classic um what did abraham lincoln say if they give you 10 hours to chop down a tree spend nine and a half hours sharpening your axe (laughs) (laughs) so uh and and that experience i mean what did you expect from it because did you did did it take off straight away i mean it was a it was a prize winning book it was a big seller loads of languages uh yeah did i well i kind of had no expectations because it happened so quickly and, and like no writer has ever been that lucky, uh, you know, because <laughs> I was writing a book and if I got stuck, I mean, we, and the set was like um, two miles from my house. So if I got stuck, they were building the set, you know, I'd get stuck and go, mm, go down the set, have a walk around. Like, that never happened to Tolkien, you know, he was like, well, I don't know how this feels. I'll go and talk to some actual orcs about how they feel about this, you know. <laughs> and, and like, because it's a book about money. We, we borrowed 200,000 quid from a bank for these shots. So it's like just being able to sort of physically be in the presence of a, a pallet of money was kind of interesting, you know. So I wrote it. It was just a joy to write. It was really quick. And I had no expectations of it. And then it did really well. The, the, the expectation problem is that because that happened, you expect it to happen every time. So I'm like, when the next book did not, win the Carnegie Medal uncontested and get 45 <laughs> translations and all that stuff. I was like, oh, it's, I'm a total failure. <laughs> and um, that would be pretty good. I'd, I'd like your level of total failure. I'll go with that. <laughs> um, and so from there, because one of the things that I've sort of realised is that you tend to pick up your stories and your story ideas from lots of different places, but... Um, it, Am I right in saying that the very first school visit you did after or four millions ended up not just producing characters, but uh, producing a whole yeah. book? 
Yeah, that was I. I, I went to. I, I didn't even know what a school visit was, and that I think the day Millions came out, um, my local bookshop had it all over the window, and I bumped into someone I knew who was the head teacher of Joan of Arc Primary around the corner, and said, "Come in and read to the kids." And I didn't know that was a thing, and uh, I went in and read. And they had a refugee family in the school. Uh, they were from Mongolia. I think their dad was a nationalist and had run into trouble with the Chinese government. And they were hugely, hugely popular. I mean, she was massively popular, the girl, Michelle. And uh, they lost their case and they were deported. They were deported in the middle of the night. And that, that head teacher came around and talked to me about it. And the girl had left her coat behind because it had happened just completely out of the blue. Um, and the kids in the class were really, really upset about her coat and wanted to give her a coat back because she talked to them about how you know, Mongolia is a desert, but it's also ferociously cold in the winter and, it, and at night. And they had that image of camels with snow on in their heads. That was their big thing. They'd loved her. You know, she'd been an amazing resource to the school. Um, and then the reader organisation in Liverpool, um, which is a, you know, it's, it's an organisation that, that, that uh, promotes reading aloud in prisons and so on. They were, they were looking for a book that would work for adults and children, but was accessible to was accessible to adults, but not um, not kiddie, you know. Um, and they couldn't find one really. They'd had one. They'd had a, a David Allman book, which had worked for them. So but they were looking for another one. So I said I'd write one, <laughs> and um, and it just turned into that. Which which again that that actually did really well. That um, that won the Guardian Fiction Prize, and it won it won a very big prize in Germany. I, I don't know if you should say this, it was much to the German uh, publisher's surprise, I think. Because <laughs> I went to that ceremony, it was like, it's a huge prize, like a government minister announces it, and it's on television. And we turned up, and there was like, you know, you pick up signals, and we just weren't picking up any signals. And I went with my daughter, who thought it would be glamorous, because I'd just been to a film, I'm talking too much, aren't I? But I'd just been to a, no. a film festival in San Sebastian. With with the railway man, which is very glamorous, it had Colin Firth in it and Nicole Kidman, and it, and I'd taken one of my kids, and it was all red carpets and limos, and they came back with all these amazing stories. So she said she would come with me to Frankfurt to the book festival because I'd been shortlisted for this prize, and they didn't send a limo, but they did send the bus timetable, <laughs> <laughs> and it was very low key, you know. So it was a big surprise that I, I won that. And my German publisher was sitting next to me, and she was she, when when my name was in it. And it's all in German, so I wasn't really following it. And then I heard my name, and I was like, oh, and my German publisher was going, I am so shocked. I am so shocked. This is such a shock. It's like, all right, okay, great. Thanks for that. <laughs> and won the German, what's it called, the Jugendliche Literature Prize, which I'm like flown out on Rhino, and the prize is this like brass statue like not much shorter than me which is like uh, could easily be a weapon you could easily easily <laughs> hijack a plane if you had it and rhino would definitely not let me on board <laughs> <laughs> i'd say so the whole kind of plane yeah it was like yeah, yeah, you, can't, yeah like... you couldn't even put it in the hold it was so big <laughs> and actually just br briefly while we're talking about prizes it, what what is your opinion on prizes as a thing because um you know, there, there's some people like them. So people like them when they get yeah, them. Yeah, people like them when they get them. Uh, obviously. Yeah. yeah. I, the, the one I won was great. Do you find them great. useful? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Uh, do you find do you go are you on judging panels occasionally do you find that process um, sort of strange to to decide between books that are often very very yeah different? i mean i was on the nibby's panel one year and like the t- t- i remember on the shortlist was the lost words which is this incredibly beautiful picture book and the hate you give which is this you know very punchy and like how yeah. do you judge between those two things you know uh, that's weird. I mean, the only thing I would say is that children's literature is very underpublicized, very underpublicized, and there's mm. very little. I mean, I, I mean, and there are a lot of heroic exceptions to this, and they are heroic because they have to fight for every column inch. But like critics have kind of abandoned their duty with regard to children's literature. I think you know, there's a great line yeah. at the end of Ratatouille when um, the Peter O'Toole character eats in Ratatouille's restaurant and says. You know, a critic isn't, it's not that big a deal being a critic, but it has one great duty, which is to be a friend to what is new. And the I think one of the problems with children's literature is that because it's, it's so under-reviewed and so has such little traction in the broader cultural conversation that you default to the classics, you default to Roald Dahl or whatever. And, and also, like, a very small number of writers end up having what is fiscally is a monopoly you know david williams jk i mean you could we could name them you know and it's very very hard for anything different to punch through that because the shelf space is so limited you know children's books i keep saying this like if you go into easton's there's a classic section and a contemporary fiction section but there's only one children's section and that children's section is obliged to have narnia is obliged to have royal dahl is obliged to have the Brothers Grimm secret garden, you know, like, and should have. But, like, so you're left with, like, two shelves, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And Morpago could be ten shelves, you know, <laughs> before you talk about anybody else, you know. So it's like, it, yeah. So th- prizes are one way of kind of chipping away at that. And um, and just you mentioned uh, kind of a picture book and the idea of a picture book. I just wanted to be... be the Unforgotten Code is a beautifully written book, Thanks. but it also has that uh, it, it uses Polaroid yeah. images and the way through as part of the storytelling. Do you think, because I, I have a feeling that the generation that has followed us and certainly the very young generation is a far more visual generation yeah. than perhaps our generation was because of the constant flow of um, you know, screens yeah. in whatever format, small and large. Yeah. And also because of the, obviously the huge amount more illustration in books. Is there, do you think there's still room for kind of evolution in terms of how books can be written, how stories can be told in, the, in, in terms of print? Definitely, definitely. I loved writing that book, you know, in, in my friend Carl Hunter took those photographs and his wife, Claire Heaney, uh, who, we, who later went on to direct a movie that I wrote. I mean, for me, like that, like I'm a screenwriter as well. So that can, that synergy between the picture and the word is really important. Uh, and that's also true of my childhood reading. You know, there are certain illustrations that really have stayed in your heart almost more than the story has, you know, um, yeah. or as much as the story has. And going back to what we were talking about right at the very beginning, you know, that saints thing, you know, <laughs> It, it, those holy statues with the images in the strange conjunctions of images they are kind of dehydrated stories aren't they you see saint catherine with a wheel or saint lawrence with a grill or whatever <laughs> and you have to kind of add your knowledge to bring that to life yeah i mean very creative things are being done with 
books and the way books look, I think, you know, my only anxiety about that is that that tends to be at the sort of top end financially yeah. of the market. And that's, you know, what was great about books when I was growing up was that they were cheap, you know, um, yeah. and they were very available. Yeah. And uh, so uh, spinning forward, uh, because we, I mean, there's so many books we could talk about, but it, to to go to the most recent book, which is The Runaway Robot, again, that is, it's a, a fantastic story, uh, a brilliant character from the very beginning. So it just it let people know exactly what The Runaway Robot is about and how you came up with the ideas for it. Oh, where did the idea for The Runaway Well, the, the hero is this boy was sort of a lot of panache to him. And that came about because I, I am involved slightly with a charity called um, Railway Kids. And that in Liverpool, that was sort of concerning itself with kids who were playing a lot of truant or disappearing from home and riding around on the night bus. And I came across this one kid who had been playing truant from school, but instead of hanging around behind the bike sheds or in the shopping precinct, was taking himself down to the airport and hanging around in departures and kind of alternating between departures and arrivals smartening himself up looking kind of busy and just and you know very comfortable environment quite a lot of food to mind sweep uh and doing a lot of people watching basically having quite a good time um, so that seemed like a good character right away and then it's also based on a i like these little gaps in history so i came across the story of the first thing that looked like an actual what we think of as a robot that was built which was this robot called Eric. It's not really a robot, it's an automaton, but it could stand up and shake your hand and it was very impressive and huge. And it was a rock star. He was built by this quite, obviously quite a narky guy called Captain Roberts who was running a science fair and the Duke of York was supposed to come and open it and he said he couldn't. So Mr. Roberts just thought, well, right. I'll show you. And he built this massive robot. Instead, instead of booking a minor royal, he built like this major robot who was a sensation. And people queued up to have their photograph taken with it the way they would have selfies with it now. And it travelled all over the world and, and it went to New York. And there's amazing press cuttings about it. Then it just disappeared just before the Second World War just vanished. So I thought, well, what happened to that? Uh, you know, and I've since found out what happened to it. But I, I thought, well, if he'd ended up in left luggage or lost luggage in that airport, and the kid met him and was landed with a robot, that would be quite interesting. He took this robot home, and I was especially interested in the idea that it was an old, it was old fashioned, because we always think of robots as the future, and Eric the robot would be, would be about hundred now. Which is yeah. kind of crazy, isn't it? That there's a hundred-year-old robot, and uh, and there's more obviously to the story than that in terms of Alfie. Alfie talks about himself as being a kind of part robot. Yeah, because the, of a, yeah, go on. Well, he's got a prosthetic. Well, uh, no, hand. no, no, it's your story. Yeah, he's got like well to get him into left lost luggage. I had to kind of have him lose something. So the thing that I came up with is if he lost his hand because he he has a prosthetic hand, and I'd also come across. In my reading about robots, I had come across a company called um, uh, Open Bionics, who are absolutely wonderful, and I kind of really wanted to honour them in the book. Open Bionics make hands and legs for kids who've lost hands and legs. and Obviously, in the legs thing, it's a lot of those kids who lost them to landmines. Um, but the hands they make, um, they make these things called hero hands, 
and they're all based on movies. So you can have like a Star Wars hand and a Battle Angel hand, and, and they're very, 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 very cool indeed. And you should look at them; they're just fantastic. And the guy who was the prototype for them was a guy called Daniel Melville, who's a big gamer, and he was actually born without one hand. And, and as I always said, like I can completely cope with having one hand. I've never had two hands, but what he hadn't been able to cope with was the sh- that it made him not want to engage with conversation. So he would kind of disguise the lack of hand and try not to have those conversations. And of course, once he got the hero hand, people would like stop him in the street, ask to have their photograph with him. And he's become this completely different person. He's become this extrovert person, you know, that, because it's so eye-catching, it's so brilliant, and it's so hopeful and cheering that um, like people queue up to have their photo taken with him wherever he goes, you know, because he looks, well, he's got this superhero hand. So when you're coming up with a, an idea, or I, I'm guessing that you're a bit of a magpie in that sense, yeah. that you're constantly picking and noting sort of st- you know, news stories, strange little quirks of history. But when do, when do you know an idea is a good idea? When you finish writing the book. <laughs> <laughs> because, I, I mean, you know this, like, the, the, you only need enough of an idea to get you going, don't they? Don't you? Because yeah, yeah. ideas really come once you start writing. All you need from an idea is permission to start. And it can be uh, it can be a tiny thing, really, as long as it's enough to get you going and as long as it takes you somewhere. That once once you start, the journey itself is where the magic is. I've just found this, this literally this morning, I found this really weird thing because I'm editing a book uh, that I've just finished writing. And I wrote it in a note like that you asking about creativity and lockdown. I did myself this big treat that I would write this book in a notebook because I wouldn't be going anywhere. So I wouldn't lose it. And it would be great to be off the computer because I would do so much zooming. And in the front page of that, I'd written down like four or five sentences that were kind of weird proverbs that my gran used to say and thought they'll be in the book. And then I wrote the whole book and they never got in there. And I'm editing it now. And those sentences that I wrote down at the beginning, they are exactly what the book needs at this point. And they're actually wow. going to sort of structure the chapters. But can it, do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. and writing, just the physical act of writing those in the book was kind of like, I've started that notebook now. And it cost me 20 quid. So I'm not really going to waste that notebook by not writing the book. Yeah. It, you know? <laughs> I'll be embarrassed to have spent 20 quid on a notebook. <laughs> well, it could be if you use it well. Yeah. That's pretty good, 20 quid. Yeah, yeah, I know. But the compulsion is like, you know, you get a gym membership thing. I have to go every day because it was so expensive. Right? And every day you kind of go, <laughs> yeah. right, it was 200 quid. I've been twice now, so it's 100 quid a visit. And I haven't been four times, <laughs> it's 50 quid a visit. It's like every page of that number was like, now it was worth it. <laughs> and do you carry around ideas? Have you been carrying around particular ideas for years that have never been, that oh, you yeah. kind of still want to have something happen, but it hasn't quite happened yeah. yet? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Do you have anything that? in particular? Oh, I, I've, I, I have uh, the ideas. I tend to act on eventually because I find that they're just in my head. But I find that I often write things. Certainly, if you're writing a series, you can often write something and it doesn't work in that book. But it'll come back later. You, you come back and you literally take it and you kind of and it. And I had one idea which would have gone from one book to the next book or you know in terms of the document on the screen and then into the next one and then it was eventually used in the fourth book in the series so there are things like that that you carry you quite literally carry around with you and they and you, you know someday this is going to be useful 
But that's like stone soup, isn't it? Do you know that? That's an old Irish story, isn't it? Stone soup. The guy who comes to the door and says, uh, have you got any food? And she says, no. But he says, well, I'll make you some soup out of this stone. Oh, yeah. And can you just put your onion in it yeah. for a little while? And then yeah. can you just put your cat and then you take the, take the stone out? And stuff. Like, <laughs> but your, that idea that's been with you, that's your stone, isn't it, in the stone soup? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit, easy, it's a bit easier with a series. I think it would be slightly more, you know, you've got to be careful. You can't take something from one completely different book, perhaps, and try and kind of well, that, transplant it, awkwardly graft it onto a totally different story. No, but you've just made me really aware of something. That's one idea that I've carried around for years and years and years and i've realized that the book i've just finished writing would be a very good sequel to that <laughs> book that i haven't written <laughs> that's so weird yeah that's there you true. go well, yeah. I, don't... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to go back. do you ever feel that pressure to write a series because obviously sometimes there's that idea that no, you know, love writers to. have to write series no or... but you, you write what you're given don't you you know yeah. i would love I'd, I'd really love to come up with a ca- like a character that could carry a series. Like, I'm not that bothered about um, sequential thing, but to come up mm. with a Mary Poppins or a Just William or a Winnie yeah. the Pooh that you could revisit and take somewhere. And it, I, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm asking that, but you did write the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang sequels, which were uh, a sequence of three books, isn't that yeah. right? So you, yeah. yeah. So you have had that. Yeah, but it was somebody it... else's vehicle, you yeah. know, literally. yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was fun. I mean, that, that, what attracted me to that was what we were talking about before, that, that in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the whole family goes. Hmm. And then the other thing about Chitty Chitty Bang Bang that sort of people maybe don't know is that that was a real car. There was a real car, oh. which um, Ian Fleming was taken. Ian Fleming wrote the original Chitty Chitty yeah. Bang Bang. And it was this mad racing car that Ian Fleming was taken to see at Brooklyn's when he was a little boy. And Brooklyn's racetrack is banked. And this thing, I'll tell you about it. I mean, it was a racing car, but the guy had put a Zeppelin engine in it. And in 1921, it was doing like 115 miles an hour or something. So at Brooklyn's, it would literally take off and then pancake wow. down again. So he had actually seen a car fly. And that the real car seemed kind of interesting, you know. And uh, in terms of, I mean, you've written for Doctor Who as well. Yeah. So you've you've taken on these other other people's ideas and yeah. characters, yeah. Um, how was how was the Doctor Who experience writing for TV? Because I always imagine it. To, I'm a Doctor Who's a big thing for me growing up, a massive thing for me as an adult. Um, and I look at it and I imagine it's both a wonderful opportunity and yet it's a very precious thing that you've been handed every time you're writing a Doctor Who episode or story yeah. and I'm just wondering how it is as an experience to actually to actually do it to take this character and to, to be allowed to have that whatever amount of free reign you have on it yeah well it was one of those things that you agree to because you think that sounds cool and then realize ah. well in fact you agreed to it because my kids were fans and it'd be like oh I'll be a great dad if I do that without ever thinking for one second were you in any remote sense qualified to do this you know um, the conversation was like the, Brian Machen who was the producer at the time rang me up and said would you like to do a Doctor Who and I said um, do I get to take my kids on the TARDIS and he said yes and so I said yes and he went this conversation always goes like this like whoever you ask that's just the conversation <laughs> they never say how much or when or you know what will my terms be it's just like can we go on the TARDIS yeah because we, you're right you know we, we all grew up with it um and amazing you know it was just so fun that like the, the the fun of it was just so outweighed any 
pain that could come from it, you know. And do you have to be aware of, I often imagine that there's so much canon involved with Doctor Who that you, if you if you in any way tweak oh, yeah. a part of the character, it has this impact on what happened 40 years ago in an episode yeah. that most people have largely forgotten. Yeah, so no. is it like, are there a huge amount, are you given a list of rules and regulations no. and entirely what you have to do? And you're in a constant conversation with the showrunner, who was Stephen Moffat when I did it. Um, and he's very aware of all that, I think, you know. And actually, Peter Capaldi was the Doctor, and he was the biggest Doctor Who nerd yeah. you could ever imagine, you know. Um, so he carried it within himself, really. Yeah, and a wonderful Doctor, I think. Well, absolutely listen, wonderful like doctor. the best thing that any dad has ever given their kids. I took them to the set, and we were shooting exteriors. And so it was fun, but it kind of got a bit and there were scenes that the doctor wasn't in and I said well we'll go back to the studio and I'll show you the TARDIS but it is just the set it's not magic it's not the TARDIS and you know the doctor won't be there so we went to the set and you've got to imagine it's like from the outside it's just hardboard with a little tiny door like an ordinary front door and you open it and it is this vast TARDIS so it does have that kind of TARDIS-y feel you go through quite a small door into a big place you open the door and Peter Capaldi was in there just getting used to it in costume. So they had like half an hour hanging around the TARDIS with the, with Dr. Who pressing buttons and him saying, well, what do you think this will do? And what does that do? And it was just amazing, you know? Yeah. Unforgettable. This is going to be a strange uh, uh, comparison. Now the closest thing I've come to that is I met the Pope. Oh, wow. That is impressive. In St. Peter's Square, we were up on the plinth as newlyweds wow. on this plinth and you're on the, in the centre of this, you know, this obviously sort of uh, square rectangular space that's lifted up above this huge crowd yeah. outside looking in and you and, and, and the Pope, Pope John Paul is right there, you no, know, he's wow. sitting right there and you have that strange sense of being in both a very small space and yet this vast space at the same yeah. time with with somebody who is in a weird way the closest you can get to the Doctor Who idea if they change every oh, yeah, year. Of course, because the Popes <laughs> regenerate. Yeah, exactly. They regenerate. And uh, yeah, so that's that's my... Uh, yeah, it's pretty... And, 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 and it's the most unforgettable thing. So, you know, there are these particularly magic little moments in everybody's yeah, life yeah. that you can't quite... Well, you win you know, on that so. one, I think. Especially well, with I that don't particular know. I... Pope. It's like he's, you know... He was really carrying history to him, wasn't he? That's that you realise yeah. that generation, you know, the Cold War, Second World War, huge, huge ideological things going on yeah. in, in the uh, body, you know. Um, yeah, an extraordinary moment. Anyway, enough about my Pope stories. Popes I have met. That's <laughs> uh, that's that's a whole other podcast yeah. we'll be doing. Um, I, I've there's so much I would have uh, I, we could talk about, and we're kind of running out of time. But I did want to ask about that difference between writing for not just writing for film and writing for books, but even the whole industry around it, because people are always fascinated by, and you'll know as well, children want to know about films. Are your books going to be made into films? Or yeah. if they have been made into films, what's it like? And, but adults are equally kind of fascinated by it. What is the big difference between writing and publishing a book and writing and making a movie? Well, I, I think the easiest way to describe it is that it's it's relatively easy to write a screenplay. Like, you know in your bones what shape a film should be, but it's unbelievably difficult to get a film made, whereas it's very, very difficult to write a children's book because all children's books are different. There are no rules, and you have to kind of 
blast out new territory for everyone and and you will think it's rubbish all the way through and are not fixable. Whereas with a film, there are people around who will help you fix it and you're on your own. But it's relatively easy to get it published once you've done it compared to making a movie like, like I said, Millions, I think it was seven years. Um, like I've been working on the movie of Cosmic since Cosmic came out, which is now 10 years. DreamWorks are supposed to be making Sputnik's Guide to Life which should be hugely exciting, but it's like, and it will be retrospectively if it comes off. But until then, it's like, it's like being, it's like being stoned to death by marshmallows. You know, it's like, we're going to execute you with marshmallows. That's what that's like. It's pitter patter of like endless. Yeah, there are a lot of meetings about, there's a lot of meetings and a lot of that'll be, there's an enormous amount. Of, the best line, I think it was Owen Colfer said, to, it kind of said to me once that it's it's always yeah. happening until it's not, which I quite kind of like that it does. Things can be can always feel like they're about to happen in film and then they can collapse in an instant. Yeah, because when people say to you it took 10 years, it's not like you did a draft and then 10 years later someone said, let's make it. It's for those 10 years. It is always just there yeah. on your desk. And it's just like, just do this, just do that, make this call, take this meeting. It's just always inching towards it you know yeah always happening until it's not so in terms of uh, what you're working on now and the plans for the future what are uh, the what are the 73 projects that i imagine in my head you're currently working on no i i am in the edit of my new book which is called noah's gold which is very exciting which is set uh, on a kind of imaginary island off the coast of donegal Lovely. kind of inish boffiny type place um and i'm really 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 happy with that it's been such a joy to write it and can you give us any idea of the story or can you say anything in terms of just a line or two about what the story is are we allowed to do that i don't know, I don't we know. well you're, you're i'm allowed to do it whether you're allowed uh, to do it i don't know it's has it been announced yet it has been announced. okay um so there's some kids on a school trip who are on a island off the coast of galway when the internet goes down so suddenly they're kind of shipwrecked but within sight of the mainland but so, and they've got no way of communicating because their phones don't work. Great, great. And when's that out? May. Okay, lovely, lovely. And then you were going to say film-wise? Film-wise, yeah. Um, we're shooting, I've got, I wrote a film about the Homeless World Cup, which again, has taken 10 years, which is, I don't know if you know about the Homeless World Cup, but it's a yeah, World yeah. Cup football competition for homeless people. And I've been working on that for 10 years. I think I've been to about five Homeless World Cups in that time and feel quite close to the competition. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic thing. So that is finally happening. Very great, excited. great. Yeah. And, uh, and to finish up, we're in a museum here this morning in, um, in Dublin, in the Museum of Literature Ireland. What Do you have a favourite museum? Do I have a favourite museum? Yeah. Sorry to throw that at you now. I, I love little small town museums which have mad things in them. So there's a museum in Kukubri in the Stuart Tree in Scotland, which has got like, which should be the National Archive of Truly Terrible Taxidermy because it's like <laughs> got a lot of very bug-eyed cormorants and things in it. But it's also got this exquisite, beautiful thing. I don't know why I, I always so moved by it. It's got lots of thick things of local history in it, purely local, but it really sort of takes you to the heart of a place. And one of the things that's in there is a, a wedding dress that was made just after the First World War. And 
on the handwritten note with it, it explains that the dress was made by the groom for his wife. He was a he was a tailor and he made her this wedding dress. And I just find that really kind of amazing. So yeah, that's just Stuartry Museum in Kakubri. I'll go for that one. Great. Listen, Frank, we hugely appreciate the time today. It's a shame you can't be in Dublin, obviously. Yeah, it's always a shame. In a normal way. Yeah. Um, But hopefully we'll get to see you here uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah. And best of luck with everything and and the the, uh, adding to that CV, (laughs) uh, the very long CV and making the rest of us writers feel very bad indeed. So thank you very much today, (laughs) Frank, for joining us. Uh, In our next chapter, we'll be speaking to Adiba Jagradar, David Stevens and Sharna Jackson on the importance of representation in children's books. Uh, thanks for listening today and thanks to our sponsors, the International Literature Festival Dublin is an initiative of the Dublin City Council, kindly supported by the Arts Council. Goodbye for today. Mm-hmm.